changemakers. You see them all around you. They're in your communities, your schools, your workplace. They do powerful things and they make change happen. In this series, we interview the many changemakers who built up their policy toolkits at Princeton and went on to change their communities. These are their stories. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Changemakers. Well, I'm so excited today. Dahlia Catan is joining us. She's the founder and CEO of Presently, a social commerce startup that's helping people celebrate special occasions more meaningfully while also empowering conscious consumerism. Previously, Dahlia worked as a management consultant both at her own practice and at Deloitte, where she led the Innovation Practices West Coast Expansion and co-founded Deloitte's program to educate employers on integrating refugees in the workplace. She was also an innovation fellow at the Center for the Edge. Dahlia previously led marketing and user experience at several tech startups and interned for IBM and UBS. She received her BA from Princeton in 2015. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really excited to come back to Princeton and chat through some policy work. Exactly. Well, let's get started with a big question, which we've been asking all of our alums. Um, There's a lot going on in the world, but from your perspective, I'm curious, what do you think is sort of the most important policy issue facing us today? It's hard to pick one. (laughs) It's a pretty busy time for us Americans. Um, I think a lot of our biggest policy issues are just coming to the surface at the same time from social justice to climate change, healthcare, job security, et cetera. And obviously COVID has accelerated the need to create meaningful change in each of those policy areas. Um, I would say that one of the ones I'm really interested in at the moment is that last one around the future of work and job security. Both employers and employees alike are realizing that what they thought was possible when it comes to work has been completely turned on its head. And at the same time that many people have lost their jobs, COVID has also accelerated the use of technology in the workplace. It's forced new models of collaboration and learning. Um, It's shifted the importance that we place on what we now call essential workers, from grocers to teachers, areas that are traditionally lower paying, despite how crucial they are for our society to function. And it's also placed, COVID's also placed a lot of pressure on working parents. So there's definitely a lot going on right now, and there's going to be a lot of disruption and movement in the employment policy landscape over the next few years. I agree. And I mean, those are certainly things right at the forefront now as we head into the winter season. And there's a lot un- a lot of unknowns with COVID. So those are excellent points to bring up. I'm curious a bit about your work with Presently. I'd love to hear more about how you founded it and then sort of what project or initiative there you're most excited about right now. So this is one of my favorite things to talk about because it brings me back to my family I'm the oldest of four, and about two years ago, I had recently quit Deloitte. I was back home for Thanksgiving, went up to my parents' attic, and literally just saw boxes and closets stuffed with toys. And I swear there were like 300 stuffed animals, 100-something board games, 15 of them were the same Monopoly set, a dozen robots, a dozen Nerf guns, all this stuff that wasn't getting played with or used. You know, Honestly, my brother had plenty of toys in his room already. He was never coming up to use any of this stuff. And it just made me realize that, you know, the ways that we show love aren't necessarily um, the best ways to connect with the people that we're trying to show love to. And so originally, I started Presently as a group gifting platform for kids with the goal of removing the environmental impact of gift waste, removing the negative developmental impacts that excess gifts have on kids. So things like, you know, increasing their likelihood of ADD, ADHD, or OCD, 
decreasing their creativity and their social skills, et cetera. Um, and the third reason why I started presently was also just to figure out how can we bring more joy and connection to the people that we love without all that junk. So obviously a lot's changed since then. <laughs> We're no longer a kids group gifting platform. True to the you know iterative nature of startups, now we are presently as a group celebration platform, really hoping to bring people together to celebrate the moments that matter and the people that they love, which I'd say is one of the things I'm most passionate about right now. The idea that now more than ever, we are struggling to connect with the people that we love. Even before the pandemic, this was an issue. So I've been working on this for about a year and a half now in order to help work toward that future where people can come together and build more meaningful connection around celebration. And then also mitigate the environmental and psychological impact of excess gifting. Can you walk me through what it's like to set up a group gift on there? I did toy around with a little bit before the interview, but I'm curious. So let's say I want to celebrate my nieces. Uh, How do you go about doing that? What does it look like? First step is you figure out who are you organizing a gift for and what's the gift that you're hoping to get them. So the average group gift on our platform is anywhere from $300 to $400, depending on whether it's for friends and family or for coworkers. Once you set that up, we give you a gift page. You can invite friends to contribute to that gift page. So it might be, for example, hey, for so-and-so's birthday, we want to help her mitigate uh, the environmental impact of excess gifts. want to get her one big thing that she'll really appreciate, something that you know we have all of our messages attached to that she'll really find meaningful. Friends and family pitch in. We've chosen to take a very socioeconomically inclusive uh, lens in our product choices. So we actually do not expose how much someone gave, whether you can give $5 or whether you can give $100. There's no shame or glory to that. It's more important that just everyone is here together to do that special celebration. And when the gift meets its goal or you know exceeds its goal, any of that excess money goes toward either a charity of your choice or toward the person's savings account. And we send them an email. We say, hey, your friends have a surprise for you. Click here to open it up. And they see the gift that's chosen. They see all the messages from loved ones who may not have known each other before the process started, right? They might just be friends from different parts of their lives, whether classmates, coworkers, family members, all with that single connection of they love and care about you and want to celebrate you. I love that. I feel like, you know, it's a little too easy to put something in your Amazon cart and just hit buy. (laughs) This is so much more thoughtful and collaborative. Okay, so let's get a bit more into your career and just sort of what you've learned along the way. I know we were joking before we hit record about how long we've been in the workforce, but you know, thinking back over the past few years, what are some of the most important skills and strategies you've learned on the job? For me, I think it always comes back to first and foremost, always be curious. Curiosity is definitely a muscle that we forget to exercise after years in an educational system and sometimes even a work environment that prioritizes the right answer over the right questions. And I think that's actually something that SPIA and the Keller Center both do a really good job in, training that next generation of leaders to become not just problem solvers, but problem finders. And then as far as skills or strategies that enable that, I think what's helped me be successful is really learning to become a good ethnographer and design researcher. So I use human-centered design tools almost every day in my job, whether it was as a consultant or whether it's now as a founder. The idea that you should always go back to the people that you're creating solutions for and really get to know what their day-to-day looks like. What are their needs? What are their pain points? What are their hopes and aspirations and fears? That being the best way to really find opportunities to create change and then going back to them and testing those solutions and designing those solutions along with them. You know, like this this sort of reminds me, I'm always impressed by people who uh, come up with a company idea or, you know, startup, whatever, 
I mean, what advice would you give to someone who has a problem they want to solve, as you say, but they're you know afraid to take the plunge? What would you say to that person? This is actually something I love talking about. When I quit Deloitte, I started a a blog series around creative sabbaticals with the hope that, you know, I came from a place of privilege in the sense that I'd saved up enough money that I could take the plunge and know that like, you know, I'd have a buffer of a year or so before I'd have to start looking for a new job if I failed. And so I've been really trying through some of those, you know, talks and blog posts to pass it on forward where even people who don't have that privilege of a savings account or a family who could, you know, take them in if they couldn't afford rent or something like that. So that even those people could take that risk and create the impact that they're meant to make. The advice that I would give them is first and foremost, have a plan. You don't have to know what you want to do. In fact, I encourage you to not have something in mind because the whole beauty of a creative sabbatical, so to speak, is that you're opening up a new opportunity to explore and to create and to be curious. But have a plan in terms of there needs to be something that's drawing you out of the work environment that you're currently in, as opposed to pushing you out of the work environment. So you should never leave. I mean, you should always leave if you're you know, unhappy with work, but you shouldn't leave just because you're like, oh, this is boring. You should have something that's drawing you. Otherwise, I find a lot of friends who just leave because they're bored end up um, traveling for a few months and then being like, ah, I don't know what to do. And then going back into another job where they haven't actually had the time to reflect and work on some of those things. So the first one is have a plan. Um, which is both, you know, are there spaces you're excited about? Are there goals that you've wanted to accomplish for yourself? Have a financial plan as well. Like really get to know how much do you have to save to be able to take six to 12 months to have that space for exploration. Talk to a lot of people. I think it's a little bit harder now because we can't travel to get that exposure to a broad set of people with different life experiences and such. But there's so many books and so many people who, if you DM them on Twitter, would be super happy to hop on a call and just get to know what are the different paths that people have taken? Because sometimes it's not so much that you know, you're know you afraid to do something that you wanted to do. For the most part, I think people don't know what they don't know. And so it's not even that they're like, oh, I really want to do this, but I'm afraid to do it. It's that they don't know what's possible because they haven't maybe been exposed to enough people who've done something different. So definitely find those people, whether it's on LinkedIn, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's reading books, uh, like when to jump or reading books like uh, Design Your Life, ways to kind of expand your thinking and expand your knowledge in the unknown unknown. I feel like that's very profound. I, I think people can really grow in times that are seemingly boring because you have the time to actually sit down and think about what you want to do or what you want to explore or what you want to learn. And it is hard. You kind of want to just jump ship at times, but like you, you can actually really grow when you sit in those moments. So I appreciate that. Um, Absolutely. There is actually a whole like series online around how boredom is creativity's best friend. When you mm -hmm. give yourself the time and space to just let all that information that you've taken in just settle and let your mind do what it's wired for, which is finding patterns and connecting the dots. That's when I think cr true creativity comes out. I couldn't agree more. This is a, a bit more concrete of a question, but um, we're asking all of our alums this you know, when it comes to decision making, what do you think are some of the more effective strategies? Because these days, it's very important to listen to all voices and make critical decisions with those voices in mind. How have you experienced that in your work? And, and you know, what do you think are the best approaches? Great question. I, by nature, am a pattern seeker. I think many of us are, but we don't kind of explore that sides of ourselves. So I find myself optimizing for breadth of perspective and information, and then letting my experience and intuition point to the best plan forward. So when I say perspective, I absolutely mean making sure there's diversity in the decision room and further creating a culture where those divergent perspectives are 
not only welcome, but are celebrated and encouraged to break groupthink, which is actually a term that I learned through my coursework in SPIA. Diversity has been shown to improve creativity, productivity, decision-making. It's definitely something that can't be overlooked. When it comes to, when it comes down to those critical decisions, when there can't be a consensus or when maybe, you know, intuition isn't enough to kind of get you there. I think that's where trust and leadership really comes into play. Teams won't always be aligned on what the best path forward will be. But I strive to let everyone on my team know and feel that their voice is important, that it matters, and that it's been considered. And I think that's what helps them trust me more as their leader. So even if I make a decision that may be different than theirs, they trust that I've taken everything into account and that I'm making a decision that's in the best interest of the company, the team, and our users alike. I love that. You know, I interviewed Melody Hobson a couple weeks back and they use a method where it's sort of like leader decides or leader decides with input and they go about each decision sort of knowing whether it's going to be a leader decision or whether it's going to be a group decision. Mm -hmm. It's it's a really unique structure when you go about it like that. So something to consider. So I I do want to talk a little bit more about SPIA. Uh, You mentioned the school briefly, but I'm, I'm curious in what ways you felt being a student there has prepared you for the career career you've had so far? Truthfully, I don't think I'd have the career that I had that I currently have if I hadn't done SPIA. I came to Princeton thinking I was pre-med and very quickly realized that was not the path that I wanted to take. Um, I was immediately drawn to how interdisciplinary the uh, School of Public and International Affairs was. It was the only major at Princeton that drew on everything, economics, psychology, policy, entrepreneurship, philosophy. And I've always been the jack of all trades, which some people, you know, I think there's a misconception that if you're a jack of all trades, that you're at a disadvantage rather than being just the master of one. But I think that the school really disproves that. And it teaches the importance of an integrated education and how to integrate those different skills and experiences and disciplines to actually become a strong leader. And ultimately, in my case, a strong CEO. You may have answered my next question, which was, how do you think the school trains students <laughs> policy leaders or just leaders in general? Um, can you, do you have any more to, anything more to add to that? Or maybe you could talk a little bit more about the tactical skills you gained at the school? Yeah, I think it goes back to that interdisciplinary nature um, of both the program and also of leadership more broadly. I know that a lot of the classes I took in our major had a huge focus on precepts. And I think that precept dynamic is super conducive to decision-making and leadership because you see kind of what happens when you have that diversity of perspective. Because Princeton students come from all around the world. And when you're in a big lecture class, you don't really get that level of like, you know, bouncing ideas back and forth. I think the precepts were definitely uh, helpful to train me at least in what it meant to make sure that all voices were heard, the value of all those different perspectives, and also to learn about how my own creativity works. I definitely play off of other people. You give me a white canvas and I'll pause and freeze and be like, I don't know what to do with this. But you put me in a room with a lot of people or a lot of like different stimuli or inputs. That's when my brain starts doing its thing. And that's, I think, when I'm most productive and most creative. I I agree with you. I'm just curious, when you think back to your time at Princeton, is there a moment or memory that sort of sticks out as being you know, one that shaped you or a favorite memory or, you know, just hearkening back to those days? When I think about moments at Princeton that definitely changed the course of my career, it was probably my thesis advisor declining my original thesis proposal and saying I had to pick a different topic. So I wanted to write about French film policy. I was at the time considering minoring in French. I studied abroad and was really just drawn to that whole world. And my thesis advisor was like, nope, pick another topic. And I decided to do something that was really close to home and chose interethnic integration. 
specifically focusing on how we can bridge divides in Israel-Palestine. That trip definitely changed the course of my career. I think without it, I wouldn't have founded Deloitte's Refugee Inclusion Program. I wouldn't have had this like perspective on what it means to integrate diverse perspectives in a workplace and the power of a workplace to create change within a society. So I would definitely say, even though I was pretty bummed that I couldn't use my thesis funds to fly to France and just watch a bunch of movies, I'm really glad that I chose the topic that I did with the with the support of my advisor. You know, today's workforce is just so different, as you mentioned earlier. And I mean, COVID sort of changed things and it was already changing before that. But when you think about that and keep that in mind, how do you think people entering the workforce or maybe even thinking about a job switch, how do you think they can be successful in doing that? I think part of that answer relies on those young people as individuals. And then part of that answer relies on the organizations themselves, giving them them as in the employees, a safe container within which to succeed. For people entering the workforce for the first time or switching careers, that's where the importance of learning to communicate, to collaborate with others, not just be a problem solver, but to be a problem finder as well, asking great questions, listening, all those are really helpful skills. And maybe most importantly, not being afraid to have a different perspective, not being afraid to truly show up as your full self, and maybe not even to have such a separation between who you are at work and who you are in life. I truly believe that work should be adding to our lives and that we should be working because we choose to on our so-called like time off. Like we should be living on our time on and working on our time off is how I've started to kind of reframe work where the work that I do is a choice that I make that adds to the experience of me living my full life. So I would say, you know, it took me a few years to learn that, but really taking the time to understand who you are and not being afraid to share your perspective and your life experiences and to uh, be comfortable showing up as your full self is a great thing to learn at any age, whether it's your first job, your second job, or later on. But then there's also a lot of work that organizations have to do to make it okay to do all those things, right? In particular, leaders at those organizations need to create a safe space for employees to experiment, to play, to go against the status quo. So at Deloitte, I wouldn't have founded the Refugee Inclusion Program if it wasn't for a social impact competition that they opened up to all junior staff. And just the fact that they created that safe space for me and my entry-level colleagues to experiment and try something new and have a perspective was so crucial to us actually being happy and successful at work. So I would say there's just as much focus on the organizations to make it safe to be yourself, make it safe to experiment, as it is on the individuals to learn how to do all the other things that I've mentioned. I love that. I mean, I guess if the if the organization doesn't have an opportunity like that, people could go to their organization's leader and say, hey, we need to do something like that. What do you think of that? Yeah. And I hope that those leaders are receptive because if not, you know, there's so many companies out there. If they want to keep their top talent, they have to really nurture that top talent and give them those opportunities to A, feel safe asking that question and B, show them that there's a commitment to actually taking action toward resolution. I was going to ask you, this is kind of like a more personal question because you were saying, you know, who you are outside of work should, you know, should be that you should be the same person or you should be working towards Mm -hmm. the same goal. How do you do that in your personal life? If you don't mind me asking. It's difficult because many of us don't know who we are yet. And it takes those experiences of realizing that there's like a mismatch of who I feel I am inside and who I'm being perceived as, or, um, you know, 
who, how I'm showing up in the world, it takes that moment of this doesn't feel aligned for some of us to find that right alignment and move in the right direction. But for me, you know, I'm a blunt New Yorker and I bring that into my relationships just as much as I bring that into my work environment. I also really love making people feel welcome and included. And in the same way that I do that when I'm hosting a dinner, I do that when I build a team or when I'm part of a team, making sure that everyone has a voice. And then also I, I like to put it in the sense of like, you know, in consulting, they say you should work with the people that you wouldn't mind getting stuck at an airport with for six hours if your flight's delayed. And it's the same for me and my team. If these are not people that I would want to spend time with, if like we were both at an airport stuck waiting for a flight to take off, then they're probably not the right people for the culture that I'm trying to build. And I say that with caution of you don't want to hire people that are just like you. You do want to have diversity of perspective. But for me, I think it comes down to like the values that they live by. Oh, 100%. That's a great answer. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. Well, Dahlia, this has been a lot of fun. I've, I've learned a lot from you and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on this episode of Changemakers. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoy talking through these questions. It's not every day that we can take a step back and talk about those bigger picture things around team building and change and how we all play a role in changing our societal fabric. So thank you for a breath of fresh air. You've been listening to Changemakers, a podcast produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. This show is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Rose Huber. Listen and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you find podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.